the ice wasn't uh, visible on the asphalt surface. And in fact, that, that, that stretch of highway around Lake Tahoe um, had been sanded earlier that day. So my, uh, my friend was thus caught completely by surprise when his rental car lost control, spun, swerved, and went over the railing uh, near Zephyr Cove on Highway 50 at Lake Tahoe. He was plummeting straight down the mountain toward the freezing water and the rocks below. And he described it as, it, he said it was a heart-clenching moment of abject terror. That's a really good way to put it. Heart-clenching moment of abject terror. He thought he was on his way to die, but then the car hit a tree. The only tree on that entire cliff face, one tree there, and his car ran up against it, it stopped, highway patrol came, threw a, threw a rope down, and he rock climbed to safety with only a couple of bruises. The car was in much worse shape. Anyone here ever have a heart-stopping moment of fear like that? Um, <laughs> uh, accidents, uh, late night calls from family, any contact with a lawyer. Uh, no, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> Seriously, there are any number of things that plague us in this fallen world, and, and many of those plagues engender reactions of what my friend felt, legitimate fear. Things were no different 2,000 years ago when the disciples that were chosen by Jesus faced a great storm on the Sea of Galilee. Open your Bible to Mark, uh, second book in your New Testament, Mark chapter 4, and let's begin at verse 35. Mark 4, 35. On that day, when evening had come, he, Jesus, told them, let's cross over to the other side of the sea. So they left the crowd and took him along, since he was in the boat, and other boats were with him. A great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking over the boat, so the boat was already being swamped. He was in the stern, sleeping on the cushion. Now, the, um, we don't have any exact replicas, although we have found some marvelously preserved boats in the mud of the Sea of Galilee. Um, in, in general... They were wide, uh, bellied out fishing boats, pretty hard to row in them because it was a bit of a ways down to the water. Uh, there was a raised platform, a stern, there was a raised platform back there. They didn't, as we would do later, uh, they didn't steer from the platform because they used side tillers. So you had a, it's kind of complex, but you had a tiller on each side and two different people controlled with a big oar in the water. And then they had a sail, uh, a great big lanteen-type sail, not very maneuverable, but, but effective. Okay, so Jesus is up on the back part. He's in the stern, sleeping on the cushion. So they woke him up and said to him, Teacher, don't you care that we're going to die? He got up, rebuked the wind, said to the sea, Silence, be still. The wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? And they were terrified. And asked one another, who then is this? The wind and the sea obey him. As we point out in the notes, um, if you're here in the auditorium, you got a bulletin when you came in. Open that up. There's notes there. If you're online with us, wherever you are, uh, welcome. There should be a place on whatever platform you're using to download the notes. And you'll see this headline, no catastrophe can upset Jesus. No catastrophe upsets Jesus. That's the big idea in this section of Mark's gospel. David Wade of our pulpit team summarized this really well. He sent me a note uh, and he said this, Wayne, I find it amazing the Lord should bring this message at this time. 
What could be more appropriate on a national or personal level? This section contains uh, fear of nature, fear of demons. We'll get to these others. Fear of demons, fear of judgment felt both by the demons and the gathering people, fear of sickness, fear of death. In a sense, these encompass all our fears. True. And it starts with the fear of nature when these disciples are working their way across the Sea of Galilee. Now, don't just gloss over this storm in the boat. The problem was serious. You know, many of us know this story. We've read it. We've heard it many times, so it doesn't seem so scary. I, I know what you're saying to yourself in your, uh, in your Daniel Tiger imitation. You're saying, what cause could they have to be scared? Jesus is in their boat, for goodness sake. <laughs> right? Great question, Daniel. But did you know, oh, Daniel Tiger, that the same is true for you? If you're a Christian, Jesus promised to be with you always. Read with me. Matthew 28, verse 20. Let's read from verse 20 all together. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus is in your boat with you. And yet, there are serious things that make you fear, right? Sometimes they cause you to panic. I conducted a very informal poll, which means it's surely more accurate than most political ones. Um, I asked 10 random people a question, and these were the responses I received. question was, what is a serious real problem that can swamp you with fear? Three people said, if my child is sick, um, and, I, and I think they meant really severely ill. Three people said, and th these all kind of are the same type answer, my company is retracting, said one person, uh, getting laid off would swamp me with fear, said a second, and a third person said, my business failing. And then those were all just one answer. One person said, um, what, swamps, what could swamp me with fear would be this. I'm forgetting things, and I'm terrified of being locked up in some memory care facility. Somebody said, my kids aren't walking with Christ at all. Another one said, I, I swamp me with fear, COVID-19, and the fact that people won't all wear masks. Um, and then someone said, the results of the election are horrifying. Now, the, those are... Those are scary, at least to the people who gave those answers. Other things are frightening to you. Nothing, though, is gained. Nothing is gained by pretending that life isn't sometimes terrifying. It is. It is. The storm is raging. But panic is pointless. The fear is real. But panic is pointless. And yet, what do the disciples do? They panic. Jesus is asleep back on the stern, and the guys are freaking out. And their panic is the real problem in the passage. I don't know about you, but Phil Vischer and his Veggie Tales have ruined much of life for me um, in a really sweet, serious way. I cannot read verse 38 without picturing Larry Boy and the Fib from Outer Space. Take a look. What's he doing? I don't know. Maybe he fell asleep. Well, somebody should go wake him up. Here it is. I am going to die. I am going to die. 
what we feel. By the way, Vishur and Iraqi brought out a number of elements from Mark 4 in that clip. I don't know if you noticed, but uh, Larry Boy's fear is appropriate. But his panic is just as foolish as the disciples' panic. And thank goodness we're never like that. We never worry or panic during a catastrophe. Bob Pritchett is an acquaintance of mine. He, uh, he founded Faith Life Incorporated. And doing so, he created the most powerful Bible study tool ever conceived. Logos uh, Software is an amazing platform that helps me craft my lessons every week. Recently, Bob shared a reflection on panic. I, th- I think this is really, really good. Look what Bob said. Sometimes I worry. I worry about catching COVID-19. I worry about being able to meet payroll of sales fall. I worry about letting down Faith Life's employees, customers, and investors. I worry about disappointing my wife, going bankrupt, needing a job, losing the house, being embarrassed by bad decisions or poor judgment or having failed in business. But I don't panic. Because I've read a lot of history, I know that scary unknowns aren't unique to our present circumstances. We, we actually live with a lot more knowledge, understanding, and predictability than people have throughout history. We don't worry, for example, that neighboring people group will invade and kill us all next week. Our cities don't need walls. And when that historical perspective seems too remote to speak to my scary circumstances, I think about my Wanda. That's his grandmother. My Wanda, who lived through pandemics and depressions and the fall of empires, who saw the rise of Hitler and the destruction of Europe, and who served as a nurse in a war on the other side of the world, and then came home to bring children into a world of horrible diseases and fear of nuclear annihilation. And then I think about how this woman, who saw the world turned upside down more than once, is the same woman I knew as Mom Mom, who tended her flower garden every day and gave me chocolates and liked to put cheddar cheese spread on toasted English muffins, which I loved. And who loaned me some of the money that let me quit my job and work full-time on Logos Bible Software, which helps scholars sitting in their homes study records stored in libraries around the world. Yes, the pandemic is a big event. One more big event and what I expect will be a lifetime full of big events, none of which is reason to panic. Amen? Bob is right. There is no need to ever panic. We should trust God instead because faith is the issue. That's the big issue. Go to verse 39. Um, He got up, rebuked the wind, said to the sea, silence, (sighs) be still. The wind ceased. There was a great calm. He said to them, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? And they were terrified and asked one another, who then is this? Even the wind and sea obey him. I I only have time for two observations on this. You'll find more as you study. Um, Here's the first. They miss the power of no fear because these disciples know fear of catastrophe instead of knowing fear of God. You see, when one knows fear of God only, one needn't know fear of anything else. That person then can truly have no fear of anything on earth. Here's the other observation. If they had harnessed their fear and appropriately furled the sail on that boat, they could have sped across that lake. There's a big clue in the text that Mark gives us. The phrase, waves breaking over the boat, that tells you something. How many of you are sailors? How many of you have have sailed fairly often? Okay, a few, good. All right, when when waves are breaking over the boat, that means that, that that you are moving too slowly. If you're going to handle rough water, you've got to have enough speed so that the boat can rise up over the rollers. 
The only way you can get that speed is either to row, which would be very difficult in a storm in this kind of boat, be very difficult not in a storm, uh, or you've got to have a little bit of sail showing. The wind actually is from behind them, otherwise the waves wouldn't be breaking over the boat. They've got a following wind, they, which, by the way, is the norm on the Sea of Galilee. This storms uh, during the nighttime come off of the ocean, off the Mediterranean. So, so they've got a wind behind them. They could harness this and use it, but they panic, and they're not moving fast enough. That's why the waves are breaking over the boat. And so, in that situation, what happens? Jesus speaks, and there is a what? Everybody, what's the text say? A great calm. So now these faithless guys get to learn the big lesson in life about faithlessness. Faithlessness leads to backbreaking work. Now they get to row, right? Now they get to row. Ever since Genesis chapter 3, human beings have been learning this lesson over and over and over. When I don't trust God, when I don't engage with God, when I don't use the strange or fearful or crisis situation in faith with Him, then I get to do backbreaking work, thorns and thistles, all the days of my life. Christian, think about your life. Where are you having to row right now? In what area are you learning that if you had just trusted Jesus, you could have taken an easier route? It might have been exhilarating, like a furled sail in a storm, but it would have been much better than the, than the slow, sweaty slog of rowing. Fear is fine. In fact, fear can be channeled to forward motion, but not when I lack faith. Faithlessness dooms me to rowing. Now, look at our next scene. Chapter 5. Go to chapter 5. They came to the other side of the sea, rowing, exhausted, to the region of the Gerasenes. By the way, these people are sometimes called Gadarenes. It depends on which people are talking about them. They went by both. They've heard it both ways. Um, the region of the Gerasenes. As soon as he got out of the boat, a man with an unclean spirit came out of the tombs and met him. He lived in the tombs, and no one was able to restrain him anymore, not even with a chain, because he often had been bound with shackles and chains, but he had torn the chains apart, smashed the shackles. No one was strong enough to subdue him night and day among the tombs and on the mountains. He was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and knelt down before him, and he cried out with a loud voice, What do you have to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you before God, don't torment me. For he had told him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. What is your name? He, Jesus, asked him. My name is Legion, he answered him, because we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the region. A large herd of pigs was there, feeding on the hillside. The demons begged him, send us to the pigs so that we may enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. The herd of about 2,000 rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned there. The men who tended them ran off and reported it in the town and the countryside. And the people went to see what had happened. They came to Jesus, saw the man who had been demon-possessed sitting there dressed in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs. Then they began to beg him to leave their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged him earnestly that he might remain with him. Jesus did not let him, but told him, go home to your own people. And report to them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has mercy, had, had mercy on you. So he went out and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And they were all amazed. As we headline on the right side of our notes, look there. Uh, no demonization or mental illness can stop Jesus. This poor man is a mess. Much like the storm during the night. There's, there's no reason to minimize the severity of the situation here. This guy is messed up. 
The, the famous uh, psychiatrist, uh, Frank Minrith, one time he and I were at lunch and we ended up discussing this. And um, Dr. Minrith told me that he saw signs in, in Mark's account and in Luke's account of this, he saw signs of severe mental illness here. Uh, that, it, that is, the demonization had affected the man's brain chemistry to the point that he was often psychotic. Now, whether it's demonization and or added mental illness, this dude is experiencing a terrified, terrifying break with human norms and even with reality. Look at the heartbreaking images here. He's among the what? Where is he living, everybody? Where is he living? In the tombs. His life is consumed by death. He's been locked up. He's cutting himself, likely as a wretched means to simulate feeling alive. His only neighbors are absolutely unclean swine herds and their pigs. He is so far removed from human interaction. Look at this. It says the witnesses have to run off. That's a phrase that means covering a great deal of distance. Demonization is real. Anyone who says otherwise is selectively editing the parts they don't like out of the Bible. Mental illness is also real. Anyone who says otherwise is adding faith healer nonsense to the Bible. Let me just ask this. How many people here? have had to deal with mental illness in your family or among your friends. You've had to deal with mental illness at some point in your life. You've had interaction. Okay, most hands. Thank you. And according to Scripture, it is almost certain that each human has also experienced some level of demonization. Were I to ask who here has dealt with demonization, I'll tell you every hand should go up. If you doubt that, look up here, James chapter 3. But if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't boast and deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. What's that last word, everybody? Demonic. When you and I deny the truth, which we have all done, when we boast, which we've done, when we have bitter envy, when we have selfish ambition, we are being influenced by, by demonic craftiness instead of God's wisdom. In other words, our thoughts and actions on a regular basis are demonized. The city's response to this poor man is, uh, is inexcusable. They treat him abominably. He was alternately chained, homeless. Luke tells us he was naked. Now look, I don't, I don't mean to throw stones at the garrison people because it's, it's very hard to deal with these kind of problems. But these people seem to me as prejudiced as the fictional characters in, in Maycomb, Alabama. Those citizens of Maycomb, Alabama are the people who ostracized mentally ill Boo Radley in, the, uh, in Harper Lee's novel To Kill a Mockingbird. How many of you have read To Kill a Mockingbird or seen the film? Okay, To Kill a Mockingbird. All right. Interestingly, by the way, if you've read the story, you know that the townspeople actually changed. Through the book, To Kill a Mockingbird, they, they grew and they changed regarding racism, but they never changed regarding their treatment of mental illness. Never. After Boo Radley saves their lives, the, the Finch children never see him again. No one does. He's completely cut off. That's what the garrisons are like. And after this poor man's miraculous rescue, the people still respond horribly. Look, instead of being excited about the good news, they were what, everybody? What were they? They were afraid. They were like people who sit around watching the news all day. Seriously. They let fear cloud their judgment. Look, Luke's account. Look at Luke's account. Luke 8. Then the people went out to see what had happened. They came to Jesus, found the man the demons had departed from, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind. And they were what, everybody? Afraid. Meanwhile, the eyewitnesses reported to them how the demon-possessed man was delivered. Then all the people of the Gerasene region asked him to leave them because they were gripped by great, what? Fear. So getting in the boat, he returned. Now they're likely afraid because this miracle was of God. And they are violating God's law. 
They are, they, Moses' law was very clear about how you are to treat somebody who is disabled. They're violating the law. Moses' law was very clear about pigs, and they kept, and they kept pigs. They, 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 they are probably scared because this was so shocking. They're surely afraid about any more financial loss. I, 2,000, that's a lot of bacon, folks, right? That's a lot of money. And I don't know if you've noticed, but sometimes earthly treasures can get between people and Jesus. But regardless of the motive, they refuse to accept results because they're gripped with great fear. Thank goodness we're never like that. Obedience is the main issue in this passage. The Gerasenes miss the power of no fear. K-N-O-W. They ignore the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom. They are so crazy, they actually beg God the Son to leave them. The formerly crazy man is much more sane. He's utterly obedient. He wants to follow Jesus physically, but Jesus gives him a different mission. And the guy completely obeys. He goes around all ten of the Greco cities that were called the Decapolis, sharing this news about Jesus, this God-man who loves a crazy person more than a, than a sounder of pigs. I think of that man every time I walk through one of those archaeological sites that, that comprise our recovery of the Decapolis. I walk there and I think, that guy walked right here. He walked right here, going back, obeying Jesus, and the people marveled. The demons obey. I, everybody but the Gerasenes obey. They, they, they were terrified, of course, of being cast into the pit of torment for God has already bound a number of demons, and they had no choice but to accept Jesus' decree. The pigs obey! They go where they're told and thus unwittingly cleanse the whole village. It's all about obedience. Harper Lee built this ethic into that book, To Kill a Mockingbird. Look at this. This is one of her last interviews she gave before she retreated from public life for over 50 years. 1966, uh, Miss Lee said in an interview in the New York Times, Surely it is plain to the simplest intelligence that To Kill a Mockingbird spells out in words of seldom more than two syllables a code of honor and conduct, Christian in its ethic, that is the heritage of all Southerners, close quote. Obedience is the main issue. It's the main issue in Boo Radley and Scout Finch's Maycomb, Alabama. Obedience is the main issue in the area around the Sea of Galilee, and obedience is the main issue right here. All right, let's finish the thought section. Uh, pick it up, verse 21. Verse 21. When Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the sea. Still the Sea of Galilee. He's not at the Mediterranean Sea. He's on the western coast of the Sea of Galilee. One of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet and begged him earnestly, My little daughter is dying. Come and lay your hands on her so she can get well and live. So Jesus went with him, and a large crowd was following him, pressing against him. Now a woman suffering from bleeding for 12 years had endured much under many doctors. She'd spent everything she had and was not helped at all. On the contrary, she became worse. Having heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his clothing. For she said, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be made well. Instantly, her flow of blood ceased, and, and she sensed in her body that she was healed of her affliction. And once Jesus realized in himself the power had gone out from him, he turned on the crowd, crowd and said, who touched my clothes? The disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? But he was looking around to see who had done this. The woman, with fear and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Daughter, he said to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace and be healed from your affliction. 
While he was still speaking, people came from the synagogue leader's house and said, Your daughter's dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? When Jesus overheard what was said, he told the synagogue leader, Don't be afraid. Only believe. He did not let anyone accompany him except Peter, James, and John, James' brother. They came to the leader's house and he saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why are you making commotion and weeping? The child's not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him, but he put them all outside. He took the child's father, mother, and those who were with him and entered the place where the child was. Then he took the child by the hand and said to her, this is Aramaic, Talita Chum, which is translated, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl got up and began to walk. She was 12 years old. At this they were utterly astounded. Then he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Stop there. These connected events show that death and disease are no match for Jesus. Isn't that an amazingly powerful way of sharing that truth by weaving together these two incredible stories? Look, sandwiched in between parts on Jairus' daughter, we're told of this unknown woman who has bled for years. Now, the text is written this way because Mark wants each reader to learn from a natural comparison and contrast that arises from this intertwined arrangement. My friends Danny Hayes and Scott Duvall highlight this in their fantastic book, Grasping God's Word. And in their book, they give this assignment, and I'm going to give it to you as your homework. I really do want you to do this homework. I saved a little bit of room in your bulletin. You have more paper at home. Um, You need to do a comparison and contrast of Jairus and his daughter with the bleeding woman. It really will help you understand the text more. It's written that way on purpose. Let me give you a couple just to get you going. Jairus is a man. His daughter's female. The bleeding lady's a woman. Jairus asks for help publicly in front of everyone. The woman silently reaches out. Let's do one more. How old was Jairus' daughter? The text told us. How old was she? How many years had the woman been bleeding? That's pointed out on purpose, right? What are the parallels in in the tale? Um, I I really encourage you, wherever you are, um, take time. Take time this week. If you're you're with us on a podcast, if you're with us on live stream, if you're here in the auditorium, give yourself time to think, to observe, to be astonished and wonder. And when you do, you'll notice some fascinating things. Let me just walk you through a few things I noticed. The first, and I put this in our notes, is these were both horrible hurts. These are both horrible pains. Losing a child... Is one of the most severe pains anyone ever endures. Some of you have experienced this. One of my friends lost their daughter, and he wrote about what he and his wife were going through in their grief, and I will never forget it. I, I, I saved it, and I look at it when I weep with those who weep. He said this. He said, our unfocused feelings tend to swirl and stagnate in a cesspool of pain and self-pity Behind the dam of loss. And as bad as that kind of crisis loss feels, chronic loss is just as wretched. This woman has spent all her money. She's suffered from various quacks. And she's not only sick. Here's what's probably more important to a Jew. In fact, I know it's more important to a Jew. She is ritually unclean. She has been ritually unclean, unable to enter into certain kinds of activities and worship situations for 12 years. She can't go into polite society. The image is really powerful. She's bleeding. Now, don't assume this is uterine. Everybody assumes that. It may be. It may not. 
Regardless of where she's bleeding, her continuous blood loss is this amazing literary picture of our chronic loss. It is draining. Have you ever had a chronic loss? You ever had chronic physical ailments that don't go away, memories that, that haunt you, business problems that are just, in fact, what, what do we say about it's bleeding cash, right? That's our phrase we use. You've got relationships that never seem to get better. If, if you've dealt with any of those, you know that both death and chronic loss are serious hurts. But what's the end result? Each of these ladies is made whole. Mark permanently imprints this truth on us. Not bad medicine, not chronic pain, not even death can stop Jesus. All God's people said? So tell yourself, no fear. There's absolutely no situation that is a problem for Jesus. In His time, excuse me, by His decree, God the Son makes all things beautiful. Just, Just... Examine the worst case scenario. Okay, suppose we face death, either ourselves or those we love. That's awful, right? Is it the end of the story? Yes or no? No, for believers in Jesus, God promises this. Romans chapter 6, you read the underlined part with me. Uh, Verse 5, for if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death. By the way, that's the big idea in Romans 6. Paul's been leading up to this in that great statement of theology. We are united with Jesus. If we trust Him, we are united with Him in His death and His resurrection. So if we're united with Him in the likeness of His death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of His resurrection. Amen. Without minimizing the need to lament and ache over genuine hurts, we've got to train ourselves to see the resurrection power of Jesus, which is at work in everyday life. That's the point of Romans 6 where this comes from. The resurrection power is at work in everyday life. For example, when the 2020 pandemic flashed across the globe, caring people, kind people began to sound alarms about divorce and pains on marriages. Here's one memo of many that I received. This one was very blunt. This pandemic will lead to greatly increased friction in marriages. Now, that was certainly possible and it's worthy of prayer. It's true, some marriages struggle. However, Something else happened. God moved even as we were praying. Near the end of 2020, the annual American Family Survey results were published. It's always it's done every year, been doing this for a long time. YouGov and BYU have done this survey. Now, this is fascinating. This year, in 2020, they added a special section. This hadn't been in it before. This was the section. The coronavirus pandemic, and then there's four questions. The coronavirus pandemic has made me question the strength of my relationship. Only 13% of people said yes. 62%, that's amazing, 62% disagree. This is not causing me to question the strength of my marital relationship. That's amazing. Has increased stress in my relationship. I expected this one to be 90% or so. One quarter, that's all. That's all. 45% said no, I hadn't, hadn't raised stress at all, and the rest were all in between. The coronavirus pandemic has deepened my commitment to my relationship. Look at that, almost half, 47%. I have doubled down on my marriage because of this. Only 9% said that it has caused me not to deepen my commitment and made me appreciate my partner more, 56%, compared to 10%, so they did not appreciate their partner more. Now, we pray for all the people who are facing doubt and stress and difficulties. But the shocking good news is that commitment and appreciation rose up through a season of disease and death. The point is, chronic pain and even death cannot stop God's work. Finally, here's the last observation that I'll share from that 
comparison of these texts. Falling at Jesus' feet is the issue here. They each fall at his feet. They each knew fear and embarrassment. She was terrified. Jairus is surrendering his reputation. But they wouldn't let that stop them from honestly presenting their needs to the Lord. You know, falling before someone is a powerful symbol in the classical world. It's really hard for us because it only retains some of its meaning in a very few cultures. Um, the, the part that Westerners most struggle to understand is the fear aspect when you prostrate yourself. So when, so when somebody bows before, as, as, as they will in Japan, before the emperor of Japan, when somebody prostrates themselves before the pope, as uh, cardinals do, or before the king of Saudi Arabia. What they're saying is, I know no fear outside of this relationship. That's what prostrating means. This is my only place of awe and fear. That practice is so difficult for us, it's led to some really wonderful questions like, uh, like this one. This is from the Washington Post, 2011. There's a, there's a syndicated column the Post does called Miss Manners. And uh, a reader writes in, Dear Miss Manners, as an American, if I meet the Queen of England, am I required to bow to her? Miss Manners answers, gentle reader, where were you during history class? <laughs> Never mind, here's what you missed. We Americans fought a revolution against the British crown. As Miss Manners trusts you will be relieved to hear, we won. <laughs> Therefore, we do not prostrate ourselves before someone who is not our sovereign, just as the British bow to no sovereign but their own. But we do not even bow to our own leaders. Although we believe that all human beings are worthy of respect, we do not believe that any one of them is born at a higher level than the rest of us. Therefore, we perform the symbolic gesture of bending our knees in subservience only to the Almighty. All God's people said. As we close, I know, I know what you're thinking. You're, you're musing in your voice of Daniel Tiger's grandpa. Um, why are these stories considered one connected section of thought? Eh? Great question, Grandpa. Let's, let's look. Look up here. Chapter 4, the last part. Jesus displays power over the storm. The big issue is faith. Trust him. First part of chapter 5. Jesus removes a legion of demons. Obedience is the big idea. And the end of chapter 5, Jesus heals two women from disease and from death. Falling at Jesus' feet is the key there. Jesus has power over every single thing. The wise respond to him with faith and obedience Falling at Jesus' feet, knowing no fear beyond the awe of him. In your notes, you can see how my friend Danny Hayes summarized this. This is really good. Um, he said, through his mighty works, Jesus shows himself sovereign over the forces that are hostile. Storms, demons, disease, death, strike fear and hopelessness in the hearts of people. Mark's first century readers were facing persecution and hostility. Through this series of stories, he assures them that Jesus has power over everything they fear. He can calm the sea. He can cast out demons. He can heal diseases. He can raise the dead. They should trust him in the midst of the desperate situations of life. Close quote. And that's our conclusion. These stories are connected for a reason so that Christians will know fear of God only and know no fear of anything else. Martin McDonald of our pulpit team uh, developed this summary with me. I, I only had a little bit to do with this. This is mostly Martin's work. This is really, really good. Um, look what Martin put together. He looked at all the people we've seen in the stories, the main characters, the men in the boat, the disciples. They were fearful, right? But they were fearful without trust. They did not trust him. I am going to die, right? No trust there. And even after Jesus saves them, how do they respond? They respond with fear. What they, they were terrified. That's after they were saved. 
They responded with question. Who is this guy, right? Then we have the demoniac. Now, he's unable to trust, right? He's, he, he's not there where he can trust. But Jesus blesses him, and he has a faithful response, right? He's very faithful. He, he, he does what he goes and proclaims Jesus. He believes on him. Jairus is, Jairus is fearful as well, but he's hopeful in his fear. He, he's coming, trusting to Jesus. Please make her well. After she's made well, he's obedient. He, he, they, they feed her. The, the woman, she was fearful as well. She was scared. Of course she was. But she was hopeful in her fear as she came to Jesus. And after he healed her, she had a faithful response. She, she, her faith made her well, Jesus said. Then we got the girl. The little girl's unable to trust. She's dead, right? And yet she has an obedient response. Talitha kum. And what has happened? Immediately she got up and walked. Did exactly what she was told. This highlights one of Mark's ongoing points. We've noticed this before. You'll see it again in Mark. One of his big points is the disciples are clueless. All right? They are the only people in the entire pericope, the entire story we read, they're the only ones who are able to trust but panic instead. At, at this point, I've got to tell you this, at this point they may be followers of Jesus who are not actually believers in Jesus. Instead of, a, instead of a faithful or obedient response, the disciples are only like one other people group, and that's the Gerasenes. They respond to Jesus' power with fear. They're the only ones who respond to his amazing gift with fear. The other stories play in and out of each other with almost musical precision. Look, look, the two outer ones, one male, one female, they can't trust because of disability or death. The, the inner two, one male, one female, they're both fearful, just like the disciples are fearful. But unlike the disciples, they're hoping in Christ. They bow at his feet. you got two healed people, one male, one female. They show faith responses. Two other people blessed by Jesus, one male, one female. They show obedience responses. The bottom line, and, and this is Martin's note that is excellent. The bottom line is this. Jesus' compassionate miracles seem to have been done both in response to faith and to produce faith in him as Messiah. With that in mind, let's pray. Father, I pray for myself. I pray for my brothers and sisters. I thank you for Mark's message that the Lord cannot be thwarted. Jesus has a plan and power over everything that we people fear. Even death does not stop him. So we should trust and obey and bow to him alone. Speaking of bowing. Father, we foolishly prostrate ourselves before so many lesser things. We know fears that are not you. And thus we spend a lot of time rowing. Friend, right now, God Almighty is with you. He loves you. Confess to him. All the things, good and bad, but none of them God. All the things before which you have been prostrating yourself. Lord, we repent of our idolatry. Father, we pray that you will mold us such that we can... We can certainly be engaged with all these things that are good, but we do it by grace, by faith, by knowing fear only of you, and thus with confidence and peace. 
Lord, we pray that we trust and obey and bow to you alone. By the way, speaking of trust, I pray for anyone here who has never trusted Jesus. Wherever you may be, friend, if you have never believed on Jesus, do so right now. As he shows, Jesus is fully God. And he came to this earth to live a perfect life and to show us truth and die for you. He loves you so much. He gave his life on the cross for you. Please don't beg him to leave your district. Receive him. Jesus rose from the dead. He's a conqueror of death. He rose from the dead so that anybody who believes on him could follow him in everlasting life. Death has no sting for us. I pray you join the family and that you put your trust on Jesus. Do so right now. If you just prayed to trust Jesus, raise your hand, please, would you? Raise your hand. Let me rejoice with you. Good. Those of you who are online, be sure to interact with your host. That's a blessing. Father, I pray for all of these believers in Christ that we will never underestimate our Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.